Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Andrew. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate having you on. We mention you and your work in near enough every episode of our podcast, um, your day-by-day book from 2012, and then your involvement in the reissues. So, yeah, we just wanted to, first of all, thank you for all of your hard work and involvement in the Bee Gees music, in keeping the music alive, in the archiving of it. And how did you first discover the Bee Gees music and get involved in their career? Well, first off, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for your kind words. It's very, uh, very generous of you. And I'm so glad that, that it's been a resource to you because I started doing the work, uh, especially because it's the information that I want to know as well. I think uh, Joe Brennan's website really um, lit a candle for just a greater understanding of the massive work that the the brothers left for us to go through. And we're still discovering bits and pieces. They're the most prolific writers of that era. And to go back to how I got uh, involved in all of it, well, when I first heard the Bee Gees, it was, uh, it was growing up with my parents. They had Bee Gees first and best of the Bee Gees in their home in the 1970s. Um, so those were my first experiences with the Bee Gees, just uh, the formative experiences with, with the early Bee Gees music. Um, outside of popular culture, in which in Los Angeles, the Bee Gees were omnipotent in the late seventies. And as far as hearing them everywhere you, you went, but I didn't necessarily relate the two things, uh, into the 1980s, I got more interested in what they were doing in their early days and, uh, and, and started collecting their records and through the nineties made more friends who were serious about the Bee Gees music uh, in all eras. But specifically uh, I did focus on the early era and that's what my book really covers. And the reason why I didn't do a career spanning book was because I had all the resources to do this this one area and I wanted to do it well. Whereas if I tried to do everything, I felt like I couldn't cover all of that. So that's a background. And, and just so people understand, not just a, a Bee Gees fan, but my background is in reissue work and in writing. Uh, I've written a few books uh, a very extensive book about the monkeys as well. And uh, it's, uh, it's a bit more extensive than most people can even handle. But um, I started out doing reissues for the Rhino uh, label in 1990 when I was um, 17. So I've been at this a good long time and I've worked with a lot of different artists besides the Bee Gees, but um, working with the Bee Gees is one of my proudest uh, accomplishments, certainly. Have you met them? Uh, <clears throat> I met Barry and Robin several times and interviewed them as well. However, uh, by the time I started working with them professionally, uh, Morris had passed. Uh, and um, I had seen the Bee Gees uh, perform live, though. Uh, so I, I consider myself lucky because it seems like they were around quite a bit in the late 90s and early 2000s doing that. But now it's, it's a long time ago now. So when did you see them live? The, well, the last show I saw, they did a show I- at Dodger Stadium, like as a part of a radio station package. And uh, I, I was sort of, I, I went down there not having high hopes because it wasn't a full Bee Gees concert. But they actually performed for quite a long, a long show, at least an hour or more. Um, they were on with a bunch of contemporary artists at the time. And, uh, you know, I sat through all these contemporary artists at this big baseball stadium and thinking like who's going to stay to see the Bee Gees and and when the Bee Gees come on are they just going to do you know run of their you know hits and, and stuff but they did the full range of material and they were they were absolutely fantastic yeah and then how did that evolve into 
becoming involved with the reissues and reading the ultimate biography you have contributions to that and then I, I saw in there that your early recording of nobody's someone way before the odessa reissue if millions of us could just realize the shadow is me the shadow is me right yeah i was the first person to record that or release it commercially although i've since found another demo that i guess somebody else may have tried to do it at some point um you know being a fan and a, and a collector as well as a professional just i was collecting information about all the stuff that i like i i do work on other artists that i that i'm just more professionally invested in um but with the Bee Gees, it's a personal investment too because i'd love their music so much and uh i had been working for a guy named bill levinson who worked on the tales from the brother gib uh box set tales from the brothers gib <laughs> And I had got started in reissues through a guy named Bill Inglot, who did the remixes for that of, uh, it's the first time stereo for, I think, Barker the UFO and uh, Tomorrow Tomorrow. He did all those, and, and that was around 1989, 1990, he did those. And I was around the studio when he was doing those, and it was very exciting to hear the multitracks for what they had sent over. So, uh, and, and Bill and I actually did the early uh, work on the Rhino or reprise reissues as, as they came out just before he left, uh, the company. So, uh, so through Bill, I got a hold of a load of different information. I mean, Bill was also the resource. I think that Joe Brennan tapped to get a lot of the information that's through his website because it was just a lot of paperwork for the tape listings and stuff. So I was aware of a lot of things and then started collecting other bits and pieces and, so by the time Rhino uh, made an acquisition, it was, um, it was a 10-year deal with the brothers. They took the masters away from Universal and they brought them to Warner Music. And that was around 2005. So is that how you come to listen to the, all the masters then for the book? Exactly. Yeah. So it wasn't specifically for doing a book, but as part of my job, I was going through everything to do reissues because we had planned to do all of the albums as expanded editions. But what happened was after we did the first three records, uh, the first three British records, uh, Bee Gees first, Horizontal and Idea, the enthusiasm at the company waned for doing it. And also, I think the enthusiasm from, from Barry waned as far as continuing on and being uh, really engaged in it. So, uh, you know, Barry and Robin were very engaged in those first three records. And I interviewed them for the liner notes multiple times and also went through the unissued material with them. And then, you know, I was most excited about doing Odessa. When we came to that, it was a real frosty situation just um, from the label kind of held up the reissue for what seemed like almost two years. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? It was about two or three years because I think they put out the greatest hits, didn't they? I think in between. Yeah. And so it was a difficult thing because the uh, Warner Music had made a tremendous investment in in uh, the Bee Gees music, banking on a return that wasn't there because it it wasn't necessarily the Bee Gees, but a lot of things were were factoring in at that time. It's a more complicated situation. It has to do with the fact that there was a huge um, economic downturn around two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and uh, there was also the closure of Tower Records, which was a major point of purchase for a lot of 
physical product. So the Bee Gees were in kind of on the waning days of like we did some sort of exclusive with Best Buy, which is a big chain over here to sell those Bee Gees greatest records, which was an enormous chart record over here. But it was never going to be enough to recoup the investment that they had made initially. And so the company just instead of going in and thinking like, well, it's all this great music, we'll put it out. Um, they just sort of said, we don't want to do this um, expanded stuff anymore. And it was a heartbreaker for me because I, that's that's what I had been planning. I had, I had uh, sort of gone through all the other records. And in particular, it seemed like there was hope that in Japan they were going to put out expanded versions of some of the albums. And then that just didn't happen. And Barry wasn't overly enthused at a certain point about adding uh, unissued material to the records. Uh, he wasn't even really enthused about um, doing more interviews or things for the liner notes. He, his big uh, instruction to me for Odessa was pretend I'm dead and write it. You know, you have to deal with artists that are, are deceased. So what would you do? You just have to take from, you know, archival interviews. And so, you know, don't, don't, you're not, you're not going to have any access. So that's what I had to do. I, I was, I was regretful because Barry and Robin were both alive at that point. And, um, and I knew that, you know, they might just as likely give an interview to Uncut or Mojo or one of those when it came out and give a fabulous background interview to talk about. Odessa, which is what I wanted to do, and and you know, and their own record wouldn't have that information, and that's that's that was sort of the, the at that point I didn't have a lot of direct access and and uh, to them because of this long delay, and uh, and so <laughs> I was filled with consternation about the entire thing because I, I thought like, gosh, what a missed opportunity, but it's hard to convince the artist as such. So the last time I saw Robin. Um, they, Barry and Robin had come out to do, um, a TV appearance on dancing with the stars together. And so they were both there and I had some time after Odessa, uh, had finished. And actually I was just about finished with Rhino too, uh, because of the economic downturn, they had laid off 40 people, including myself. And one of the last weeks I was there, they were, they, the Bee Gees were on dancing with the stars and went, we went down, um, a delegation of us went down to go visit with them. And I brought my copy of the Odessa reissue to get signed by Barry and Robin and to let them know how much it meant to me to get to work on their music, especially this album, which was one of my favorites of all time. And Barry said to me, he goes, one of your favorites? I mean, you know, when I look at this record, all it represents to me is like a lot of bad times, a lot of negative feelings, a really terrible time in my life. That affected me a great deal. I didn't think like, well, he doesn't understand where I'm coming from. It was more like, you know, maybe I don't understand where a lot of artists are coming from because, see, I see their music and I'm sure the two of you listen to the Bee Gees music and you're filled with all these uh, intense emotions and, and, you know, elation, happiness, despair, all the things that the Bee Gees cover. But personally, you know, there's a lot of their personality in certain in certain records and and that one in particular. So um, it, I I start to think about the relationship between the artist and their music a lot differently. It's not my music, you know. As much as I feel uh, an ownership or a stewardship to want to bring it out to the world and spread the word and the gospel about the, the Bee Gees and their wondrous uh, talent, um, you know, I, I I I took a step back and sort of felt like, well. 
you know, Barry's kind of right. I mean, it it's it's a different thing. I mean, it's unfortunate, but the record has been out since 1969. So, you know, uh, I I did. Um, uh, you know, I, I did talk to Robin too at that time about uh, doing the reissue that eventually I did of all of his solo material from just post the split, and um, and so that was you know that was a project that took ten years to get finished as well. So it's long term things, but anyway, very long answers to your questions. And- <laughs> <laughs> well, going back, Andrew, to the two thousand six reissue, I was just going through one or two bits and pieces, and there were songs like Men of Men which I think you put down as it was vetoed towards the end. They decided not to put it on the reissues. Was that because of the quality of the song, do you think, or wasn't it completed? Yeah, I don't recall Men of Men being particularly um, strong, and I'm, I'm not totally sure about the uh, how uh, complete it is. I'm trying to jog my memory on Men of Men. Is that the one with sort of a recitation on top of a... I think it is, and I think didn't Morris and... Billy Laurie, go back to it a couple of years later, I think. If it's the same song I'm thinking of, I'm not sure. That sounds possible. Yeah. Um, you know, they there were certain numbers. I mean, thankfully on those those three records, they okayed a lot of things. And on Odessa, too. That, oh, absolutely. A lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. On Odessa, too, they allowed me to put out that sketches thing, which has tons of, of working versions of things. So they were very generous in in. Uh, but for the most part, because I think songs like "Pity" they're they're fantastic. It's one of my favourites. That uh, yeah, me too. It's a great one, isn't it? So you said you started working on Morris's, uh, sorry, on Robin's album. That he did an interview, I think, in Radio Four in two thousand eight. Was it sort of talking about um, "Sing Slowly, Sisters"? So do you think he would? He had he been alive, he would have liked to have released it. Oh, I think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, was that for the Lost Albums? Um, That's it. You've got it. Yeah. Yeah. I believe I might have been interviewed for that as well. Came to my office and I gave him actually some of the the acetate uh, that I had because I've had friends who collected acetates and and tapes and I've collected acetates and tapes, you know, bought them off eBay and stuff when they come up um, because, you know, it's the sort of lost history that's not necessarily in the official archives. And a few of those things have, you know, made it onto the reissues that I've worked on. But um, yeah, I, I think that the the tide was turning, and I kind of felt like Robin's story is still such a unique one, and and just what an amazing eighteen month period where he he did all that music. But as I said, you know, for the family, I mean, I think Barry was not especially happy. Um, it just represents so much discord with what was. For the most part, a long and and very fruitful, you know, familial relationship. But it just, I think the brothers. It's it's tough to know what it was like to be be like them and be in that kind of position to constantly be with one another for for your entire lives. You know. But that Robin one. He, I mean, he was he was still in what nineteen, wasn't he? Nineteen twenty throughout that period as well. So, you know. Th- We've gone through all the tracks, haven't we? Talking about each track, and I think the three disc virtually covered everything, wasn't it? I think there was a, I did see a an EP thing, wasn't it, with a couple of tracks on it, midnight to midnight or midnight to dawn or something. Yeah, yeah. There's there's more. Yeah, there's more stuff. In fact, I got a hold of a collector. Um, a lot of collectors helped me with that particular project because the. Robin's stuff had been scattered to the wind, really. So, uh, so it was it was a team of different collectors who who helped me out um, to 
to put together the stuff that wasn't in the official archive. And um, there was an EP of stuff uh, and a collector had sent through some files to me at the time, but they had transferred their uh, acetate to a CDR. And the, the CD, when they sent me the, the, uh, the files, the CD was sort of skipping it. it so it was like repeating um, certain musical passages and stuff and I couldn't use it and they, they couldn't get at transferring again in time. So that was, you know, so that didn't make it on. <clears throat> and subsequent to that, there's been a few more songs from that period. I mean, he, he had some sort of setup to actually cut lacquers at his, at his home. Yeah. It's, it's bizarre. I mean, he was just, he was so intensely creative. I mean, um, I say bizarre just because it's, I, I don't think there's any other artist that's comparable, but it's similar with the Bee Gees as a whole, where there's no other artists that were that prolific. I mean, even if you look at members of the Beatles or anything else, I mean, the Bee Gees just have such a different approach to songwriting and creativity. It's just <laughs> endless. Was it Barry has said, you know, I'll never run out of songs or something like that? You know, I mean, he he might not be he might be the only only writer like that, you know. I mean, I found interested on that set. There was about six or seven 1968 demos put on there. And I think there was just one missing. I didn't know whether that was missing from the tape or the quality was bad. It could be that it, all that existed was a false start on it. I think um, those were done during the um, idea sessions. And it was really weird because I think I talked, I was mentioning these to Barry and I said, you know, it's Robin and his guitar just playing through songs. Robin doesn't know how to play guitar. And I go, he does enough to play on these songs. I mean, you know, I can tell it's him playing the guitar. I mean, I know it's not you. It's not the open tuning and it's not Morris because it would be quite different playing. And But that was, was like, no, no, Robin never did that. I said, well, okay. I, I mean, it was a similar situation with the, um, I'm going off track a bit, but with the New York money disaster, the, the three versions that I found of that, um, where uh, I sent them to Barry for approval and he said, well, this doesn't go with my memory at all. And I said, oh, okay, well, you know, here are the tape dates. And this is, you know, I've, I can send you the session reels with you talking in the studio, the whole thing. He goes, well, I think you've just made this up. I said, oh, okay. Um, well, I can, I can send you the stuff so you can hear. He goes, oh, I, I understand you think you're being honest with me with what you're saying, you sound like you're being honest that you're not, you know, but I believe that this never happened and that this was just created. And I said, okay, well, you know, but ultimately he said, okay, to letting them out, <laughs> which was great because you did hear the genesis of uh, the difference between Bill Shepard's arrangement, orchestral arrangement and the, the feedback intro they tried, which didn't seem like a good idea, but you know, then what they landed with uh, Phil Denny's and his, uh, his arrangement. Uh, but you know, the, that's, what's fascinating about the Gibbs. I mean, they just plowed through all of this stuff. And, and so that one day during the idea sessions, Robin did all those songs and we included all of the complete ones. I think there might've been a one that was listed on the tape where he says, okay, and he says, it's blah, blah, blah. And then there's no, it, they, you know, he starts it and that's, it's going to start, you know, we'll start it again, but they never recorded the, uh, a full version. Because when, when we spoke to Joseph Brennan and he was saying how the both of you constructed that reissue and you were both sourcing acetates from different people. And he said how how much serendipity there was with the likes of 
Kenny Clayton's wife clearing out a cupboard and finding the entire Hudson's Fallen Wind and things like that, and just how happy accidents helped to build the reissue together and, and, and just how many happy circumstances allowed all of these long lost tapes to come together and to be restored so cleanly. Yeah, exactly. Well, that, that's the thing. And that technology too uh, marched on to where a lot of that stuff could be done, um, you know, and, and presented as, as well as it sounds. So um, it's one of my proudest projects and it's still one that I can't believe exists. <laughs> Such a surprise when I saw an advert saying this is going to be coming out. I mean, it was just like, wow, where did that come from? Yeah, well, there was a gentleman um, working uh, for Warner's named Robin Hurley, um, who had sort of taken over a lot of duties with the Bee Gees and been working with um, Barry and and Robin uh, to an extent uh, as I was transitioned out of the company. And um, he ended up working for Robin's estate for a while as a consultant. And I managed to twist his arm into talking <laughs> to doing that uh, project. And so we got it done. And that was sort of miraculous. It's really just all about getting the music out officially. I mean, I know that there's all these great unofficial ways to hear stuff online and, and you know, but to get it out where the artist gets paid and, and everybody's compensated and also to have it presented in the best audio quality, which, you know, is not always possible with uh, trading around and, and stuff on YouTube. Exactly, yeah. Just And in the Safe by the Bell liner notes at the end, you thank Dwina for giving permission and allowing you to go through these archives. Was there ever, or is there um, a proposal after that to continue and to do, say, a, an investigation into Robin's 80s work or to do a similar thing with Morris's material? Well, I'd love to do both of those things, especially Morris's stuff, which I've collected as well. However, um, nothing much more has come of it. And I don't really have any ties to the Gibbs uh, whatsoever. I contributed most recently to the documentary that was uh, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? And I was one of the uh, resources they used for that and, and gave them some advice on things. But, um, but, I, but I'm not really uh, engaged in doing that. So, you know, it's a long shot. But as I said, like the Robin thing, which I worked on for 10 years, was a long shot too. Most people wouldn't work on something for 10 years, but because it's my personal passion, you know, if, if a Morris thing comes along five years time or a one year time or whatever, I couldn't, wouldn't be able to say no to it. You know, I, I, I'd love to do it and I'd love to do Robin's eighties records and I'd love to do anything. Um, you know, I'd always hoped we would do more at Warner's. Even after I left, I went in to pitch them on doing a main course box set. Cause I said, well, you know, you feel that the, the, the ideas I have are uncommercial because you, you, you don't feel like, the music that I, I want to reissue is resonating. You know, you don't care about two years on or Trafalgar or these records. Why don't we do a main course box set? I mean, it's one of their most successful records. And also there's a whole story to it because they started out making a totally different type of record and then fell into their groove of, of a really commercial album. And I, you know, and like I pitched the Robin thing, um, I, you know, you're going to get a huge review and all, all, all the press and you know, you, you'll get, 
I'll make a reissue that will get you, you know, 10, 10 out of 10 or five stars or whatever. I can, I... Well, it did actually. I mean, I was, I was looking at that, Andrew, and I think for Robbins, I think Uncut give it nine out of 10, Mojo five stars, and I, I buy Record Collector, and that, that gave it four out of five. So it's, it was worth doing, wasn't it? Oh, it was completely worth doing just, just for the, you know, kind of the, the, my respect for Robin and, and what he was doing, which was so unique. There's no other artist that was doing any kind of music like that and coming out of such a commercial situation with his brothers and, and being, being out alone and doing that, uh, but having so much inside of him that he needed to express. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm certainly not doing <laughs> this for the, uh, for the money. I mean, I have made a living doing reissues for 30 years, but, um, but, I'm driven more towards, you know, these special projects. And uh, anyway, I, I pitched the main course box set to the head of the label at the time, who's no longer there. But there was, yeah, there was unfortunately such a, such a, a dim view of it because of this financial sort of the way the deal was structured. They'd have to make so much money in order to make it work. And any project, any one single project that you would come up with wouldn't be enough. And they didn't see the the benefit of doing multiple projects. Like the person who was running the company um, at the time, he just, he didn't believe in physical product and wanted to just go for, you know, digital sales and, and um, the more ephemeral audience, not uh, cater to collectors. He, um, he told me that my, uh, <laughs> that, that I had a very bad and skewed vision for things because I was, a fan of the music myself, that he wanted to sell it to people who didn't like the music. Um, how, you know, how do you reach those people, Andrew? Enough of you know you and your few thousand people who really like this stuff. We need to get to all these other people, and you know. But in reality, they've gone back the other way now. Rhino puts out limited edition things and things that are for a specific audience. So, sadly, they don't have the catalog. Universal does, and um, you know, Universal has the biggest catalog of any. Um, company they and so they have so much material they're unlikely to do anything that exciting with the, the gibbs i wish they would because there's tons and tons of tapes there still so yeah we did an episode recently on main course and it was just so fascinating the only early version early track we ever got to hear was your love will save the world but there were songs like was it all in vain and then was it also true that there was the original version of wind of change was much more ballad orientated yeah, I never got to go through that tape, but I would I would take that I take, would take your word or that that rumor um, at uh, as true. I mean, there was just a ton of material. It's a shame looking at other artists who don't have the same current commercial status as the Bee Gees, like King Crimson, received forty disc box sets when the Bee Gees are equally as deserving of that same treatment because you could have what you did with New York's um, mining disaster having those three versions going from the Genesis to the final version, you could do that with every Gibbs song and you'd have such a fascinating story with each of them. Yeah. I mean, I believe that it would build on their legacy and I, I believe it would create um, more respect for them than they've experienced. Um, although their commercial success and the amount of people who love them is undeniable. So, so it's, it's, you know, I, I don't want to come off as sounding like, well, only I can provide that, but I just feel that there's another level, another layer to this of people who would be as intensely 
uh, interested and proud of their music as the three of us are, if we could get to this next thing with them. But that thing is sort of like what Bob Dylan has done, where he's just sort of said, everything coming out is a good idea. It doesn't, nothing detracts from his genius of what he's done or the, the cornerstones of his catalog. Whereas I think people like the Beatles who have come really late to the idea of putting out outtakes on their, now they've done these box sets with Charles Martin going through and, and actually putting out the, the stuff that um, they didn't hit on anthology. Um, you know, it doesn't detract, it just adds you know, and it's informative and people are, are studying stuff. And, you know, the Bee Gees are, are a thing that should be studied and, and, and taught to people who are a- aspiring, you know, creative songwriters, because I don't think anybody else does it like them. Yeah, especially that period, 1970 to 1974. So like Cucumber Castle to Mr. Natural, which still is yet to have its proper critical reappraisal, which it so totally deserves. Even documentaries tend to just go from Odessa and then skip to main course. And there's that four year period, which is, I mean, we spent about 15 episodes across those four years just trying to catalogue everything. And there's there's so much and so much yet to be released. It's tragic that uh, that a lot of that music, which there's some amazing stuff in the two years on period when they're coming up to making that record um, that you know Morris and Robert are making a record together, basically. There's a lot of finished songs from that. And then Barry's sort of working on his own. And then finally they join the stuff together, but they don't necessarily just take on all that material that, that, that uh, Morris and Robin were doing. They, you know, they go into the studio and just start writing new songs. <laughs> so um, there's, there's so much like that from, from all those years, uh, 70, 71, 72, 73, it's just incredible. Those songs you mentioned that Morris and Robin were working on, could they be released without Barry's consent or would they need his consent as well? I don't know. I don't know the, the actual uh, correct answer to that. It could be that they don't, but I don't know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the other thing is, is that to, to what end, uh, you know, it's political at that point if Barry doesn't want it out and then uh, someone else pushes it out then that could detract from getting other things going with business-wise that are bigger business things. It becomes a financial thing. And then we dealt with that at Warner's too, because um, in the last years of Robin's life, um, there were lots of projects where it was still, you know, Barry and Robin kind of trying to find a a place that they could agree uh, on to do things. And the big win wasn't Odessa or Bee Gees first or these things that they were for me, the, for the company it was, or getting them to do live event or driver event or documentary or things like that, all stuff that they ended up doing. But there's always the politics too. It's like, well, you know, if we get involved in this, it's going to affect this other thing. And so I think I'm sure that that's what goes on with the minds of the estate, uh, the estates and also with universal, you know, what, what's going to keep everybody happy and, you know, um, just putting out a, you know, a new version of Saturday night fever probably is what, just keeps things rolling along. So, you know, I I think the, the issue Rhino had with that record was that when the the catalog came over from universal, this is all sort of boring stuff, but the um, universal, the way it was set up was that they still had such um, a sort of a tariff on each, each copy that was sold 
that it was difficult for for Rhino to, or Warner's to make any money off of that record, even even though it was one of the most popular catalog items. And in the deal, we couldn't change anything. We we couldn't upgrade or improve that, you know, expand it at all or do anything with it. It had to remain as it was. So it was that was difficult. You, funnily enough, I'll tell you a, a funny thing about how the Bee Gees records ended up coming out uh, on reprise rather than on Rhino uh, or anything else. It was actually Robin's choice because because they made the deal with Warner Music, which owned the you know, and Rhino was the catalog imprint of Warner Music, and uh, the various labels associated with Warner Music were Warner Brothers, Reprise, Elektra. Asylum, Atlantic, all these all these various labels, and um, Robin objected to the Bee Gees records coming out on Rhino because he said that Rhino was too closely associated with the Monkees. All right. Now, ironically, Robin did not realize that the person who was working on their records was also very closely associated with the Monkees. I I was got a big chuckle out of it because you know we. We did we did the records anyway, and they came out on reprise. I think they liked reprise because of its attachment to Eric Clapton and Frank Sinatra as well. Um, so neither of them are bad things. I mean, it's just a label. But I I always found that funny that um, you know the monkeys was a sticking point for uh, for Robin, um, even though he's supposedly met up with Davy Jones and was you know in that period that we were talking about was supposed to uh, give him some songs which haven't really turned up. So. Oh, okay. Were there demos of them? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't. I've never heard them, but they did. I have the date that they met up, and they both talked extensively about this meeting. That you know, Davy was looking for material. We're talking about nineteen sixty nine, nineteen seventy, in the Robin's Reign era. Uh, one of the offshoot, you know, million things that Robin was doing in that period. One of them was he met with Davy Jones to try and write some songs for him. So. But it's quite interesting as well, isn't it? Even this year, there was a song called, if I'm, was it Millions of Millions that come out? Sweet Shop, I think they ended yeah. up being sweet, didn't they? Millions of millions, millions of millions Could take a long, long time love yours and mine. Yeah, they're, they're, it's, it's, it's crazy just the, the different stuff that turns up. I know an acetate of that song, you that sounds a modification did that's turned up, you know? And, um, so there's bits and pieces, um, showing up all the time. And I, and I, I don't think we've seen the last of it. Like this last week, I think there was, um, an auction where the, uh, they auctioned off a demo of the square cup and, um, which I've heard, um, through their publishing tapes, um, from years back, but that was, you know, that's another thing. I think that we'll, we'll see more stuff turning up like that, at, you know, at auction or people clearing out stuff. Um, I heard a story about that uh, there was somebody who had got some acetates that Robin had left out on the top of his um, dustbin for the trash collectors in the 1970s. I just picked them up and held on to them for years and years. So oh, wow. You never know. That, that wasn't Sesame Street's trash, was it? <laughs> No, no, no. So did you start working on a cucumber castle two years on deluxe around the time of Odessa? Yeah. Yeah, I developed all of those. Um, cucumber castle two years on, Trafalgar. Um, all of those I developed with bonus tracks. So in, in the style of the 
of the other reissues that I did, yes. Wow. How far into those did you get? Was there a track list compiled? Yes, there was track lists and there was audio for approval, but it then it just stalled. Because there were songs so, like Julia I saw or things like that, wasn't there? And Bluebird, Whistle Me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So all of those all of those were sort of put together. Um, but you know, they didn't get to like the final manufacturing stage or anything like that. They they all they all got to a point of development and then they went to you know, the various parties for approvals and then it just stalled and I think there were other, as I, as I sort of gave you the big overview of, you know, the, the politics of like, well, we want to get this done or this promotion done or that promotion done, you know, these records became sort of uh, just collateral damage to, you know, let's not deal with that because we want to try and get them to sign off on doing some sort of, you know, uh, remix record or this sort of thing, you know, that, that became the thing. And, you know, it's, um, they're the people who made Warner Music are the people who made the multi-million dollar investment in licensing the music. So, it, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a, a, a worker, <laughs> you know, with a personal attachment to it because I, I love it and would love the fans to hear it and feel like, you know, fans would, would really benefit from it. And, and I think all long-term the Bee Gees would benefit from it, but you know, it's the big picture is like, I didn't put in, you know, the millions of dollars to to license the material exactly yeah is there any track that you can think of that was unreleased that you think that was good <laughs> there's quite a few of them um I mean, there, you know there was the one um i've got to learn off of bg's first um was pretty finished i think that was one of the only ones did we put that out yes is i've got to learn on yeah yeah sorry no what i meant is um there's uh so switch tracks um, there's there's a Bee Gees first era version of End of My Song, um, and it was actually labeled as as a demo for Otis Redding. So because they always talk about you know to love somebody, but I guess they'd written End of My Song for him. It's more in his style, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting that it comes up that you know a couple of years earlier than the than the more known recording that we that we have. Um, so there's also that Vince's number that was good. Um, and there's lots of different stuff. I mean, certainly from the early seventies, there was a lot of things that I liked quite a bit. Um, so, um, it's just, you know, because all these, all these outtakes you here and everything, there's no duds, is there? You know, there's nothing you think, Oh, I can see why they left this off. I know it might be slightly weaker than probably one or two release tracks, but there's nothing, even you listen to kick in the head. I mean, that to me, that's worth a release as well. Oh, I think Kicking Ahead should come out. I, I, my personal opinion is it's a much better record than Life in a Tin Can, which I think has a few strong songs and is not as good as Kicking the Head. I think Kicking the Head maybe is not a commercial record, but artistically it's a better song for song record. It just doesn't really have, you know, um, a, a I guess a, a commercial uh, record, you know, single attached to it. Wouldn't I be someone when that stalled? Uh, which is a brilliant, brilliant single. I guess that just put the uh, the nail the nail in the coffin on that one. And and it, you know, they have the master for that, and um, uh, you know, the final master and everything when we were working on the catalog and should have come out, but uh, didn't happen. So when you started, you said back in two thousand and five, when the ten year deal started, was it all of the songs and archives was released? 
was that say spanning from 1967 to 2001 in terms of the, the recordings? The the deal um, went back even further because um, it it would also encompass all of their pre uh, their Australian recordings, they're all the pre British recordings because Warner Music had that all tied up and all that stuff had been reverted. And we were actually having to do cease and desist with people because there's so many of those cheap compilations and we were um, sort of chasing down like you can't have this out anymore and. It's funny. One of the people said, "Oh, well, you you don't understand. The Bee Gees made these records before they were on, uh, you know, on Polydor. So they, it's, it's like, no, we understand exactly what they are, you know. Uh, but so so that that was part of it. But you know, and I'd hope we would do something with that stuff. But subsequently, there has been some some reissues of of those uh, those three early records and the singles and stuff beyond the Brilliant from Birth and Birth of Brilliance. Um, but but yeah, it, it would have." It it really spanned there from the very first record up through this is where I came in. That was going to be the span of the ten year deal, um, and we had the tapes shipped over from Germany they were, where they were being stored um, in a vault, and it was you know these crates of tapes. It was like the happiest day of my life <laughs> pulling out. It's a four track for you know this. I mean, we were still missing missing a few things that I was like I know they had like. We didn't have the, for some reason, the multi-track for Gotta Get a Message to You, which I know we had had in 1990. There was a copy of it for, well, for the, for the Tales box set. Uh, but, you know, stuff moves around and, and um, not everything was there, but, but it was so exciting, you know, get to finally hear all of these things that I'd read about. So uh, I, um, I did it with, with great, with great passion and, uh, and enthusiasm uh, and, Hoped that you know it would be a, a multi, a multi-year, a ten-year, um, you know, job. But yeah, because it must have been like being a kid in a candy store with all of these. You, you probably didn't know where to begin, if not chronologically. Well, I definitely, my, I'm a very linear person, so chronologically was 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 how I started. And also, I mean, I love BGS first, so uh, so yeah, so just started organizing the tapes by date, and then pulled out the half-inch four tracks of all the BG's first sessions, listen to them chronologically and started uh, making mixes of things because a lot of the uh, bonus tracks uh, on those first three uh, records are mixes that I, that I did myself. So um, they, uh, because they didn't exist oftentimes in a original mix. If there, if there was an original mix from the 1960s, most of the time I would use that because I could not replicate or, come close to what they did at IBC at the time. I mean, you, you can, but in, I, I don't have that sort of ego thinking like, well, what I'm doing is better than them. I, I like to think like whatever, you know, John Pantry or David Lloyd Shaw or whatever we're doing, like that's the intent of the artist. That's what the period sound is like. And I'm not going to get that on my more modern equipment, even if I'm trying to get to that stage. Um, so went through all the multi-tracks and then, uh, saw what was there and then started making rough, uh, you know, assemblies of things and CDRs and, and stuff to send to Barry and Robin for approval. And, and that's how we, that's how we got on with the, the project. And, uh, and then thought that after we did the first three, cause it was reasonably well received that first box set of those that we would just keep going. But then, then there was just turmoil right away, not with so much with the Gibbs, but with the, uh, the company, it's just, it wasn't that it wasn't successful. It's just nothing was going to be successful enough. And all of these other things 
were not successful, not the BGs, but other projects the company was doing. So that impacted everything that unless the BGs were going to like, for instance, this is a non BGs thing, but just like I, my boss at the time uh, was under real pressure and uh, they told me um, when, you know, when you come back this afternoon from lunch, we want to hear your hundred thousand unit ideas Meaning, unless you have a record that's going to sell one hundred thousand units of of product, um, you know, you have to leave. And and there was no record that was going to do that that they that they could easily do. Um, you know, not just with the BGS, but with all these other things. But they were there was that kind of financial struggle in order to to keep everything going for their overhead. Um, and so the BGS were a direct, uh, you know casualty of that that whole reissue series because of that that intense period because since capital have taken it over they've done timeless i think the collection and they've released about five albums in colored vinyl and i think that's the only thing they've done isn't it yeah i mean and, and that's probably a much easier approval process you know hey we're just going to put out these records that we put out before you know no you're not going to have somebody bothering you about you know some outtakes or do you remember this or any of this stuff so it's probably a much easier thing you know okay fine yeah you know sure do those um and you know I, i'm sure the money they make on the streaming and other things you know uh not the bgs themselves but the company it's just because they have such a massive catalog universal does um that it just you know it just the pennies pennies add up and everything's fine and they don't, they're not looking to to do go this creative route unless they have an artist like you know george harrison and his estate well we want to do an all things must pass box set well the estate is driving that the label's not driving that you know um and so i was came from the days of when a label would say oh we'd love to do an expanded uh cucumber castle and you know we want to put it out you know this is a project it's going to sell this and you know, blah, 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 and go to the artist and you develop it. Now it's just sort of like the other way around, uh, where if the artist says, oh, I re really want to do this. Oh, well, if you guys take care of the development of that, then, um, you know, we'll, we'll see about putting it out. But, you know, I, I don't think that, I don't think that Barry's that interested in that, um, which, um, is not any disrespect to him. I think he probably feels like, well, I put out all these great records. People have enough of my music. Why should I put out more of this stuff that I didn't think was good enough to come out anyway? Because we saw an interview with him, didn't we? Was it with Tim? Tim where, where he mentions the song Victim. And he sort of had to think. And then he said, oh, I remember that one. And it, it was even the same with when Tim recalls him of the songs from Living Eyes. And it was like he hadn't thought about those songs for 40 years. But suddenly it all came back to him and he remembered how much he loved them. Yeah, well, Living Eyes is, is a brilliant record. And really, you know, deserves reappraisal. I'm sure it's it's had quite a bit. But the other thing, to, you know, I don't want to be all doom and gloom. And certainly, I'm not um, anti Barry or negative on Barry. I, I think he's a wonderful guy. And my experience with him was fantastic as well. And interviewing him several times, meeting him several times. Uh, I think attitudes change. And I think also, like you saw in the documentary, "How Can You Mend a Broken Heart," just the the impact of him being the last surviving member of his family and the, the, the torchbearer for the Bee Gees, um, you know, I think that, you know, that 
might soften or change how he feels about things. I mean, maybe his family might get interested in, in um, you know. Particularly his sons, probably. Yeah. Yeah, they, 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 may, they may want to do something with his music, uh, his older music at some point. Um, I mean, I know like there was a period where all of a sudden a bunch of his demos went up online because one of his uh, sons was, he thought that, you know, the, the, uh, they should go up. So, so that stuff happens, you know, and just like time will pass and, and hopefully we'll be around to hear when, you know, a bunch of other acetates show up or other things, you know, somebody uncovers this or that. There's still a wealth of, of uh, information and music that hasn't been heard by the, the Gibbs. And it's my plan. The only thing that I have any control over is, you know, I did my book and uh, several years back and now I have a book company. And one of my plans for the next year or so is to update the book, do a bunch of corrections and publish a much more lavishly printed uh, illustrated version of it with a lot more information. Um, I don't know if it's going to go up further, but I, I will update it. And um, that's one of my projects I'd love to do. I just finished a book uh, that's coming out um, in November of uh, a bunch of uh, photographs that Mickey Dolan's of the monkeys took during the 60s and 70s. And um, and then I've got another project that's a non-monkeys one planned for the company. And then I'd like to do the, the, the Gib uh, book again, but um, bigger and better. So um, make it uh, available in a in a different form. Excellent. So we about six months ago we covered all the Australian material. How do you feel about all that? I love the Australian <laughs> records, and I it's also love the, I love I love all their appearances on other people's records in that period, too. Um, you know Johnny Young and uh, you know um, Ronnie Burns and and all those. I collect all of those records myself. So. Uh, you know, and I'm still collecting them. I, you know, it's I got my John single. I think in the last year, finally, you know, upstairs, downstairs, and uh, I collect all those 45s myself. Um, but they are literally brilliant from birth. I mean, they're just such fascinating characters. Those guys, those those three guys. It's funny though. You know, I um, I can't say that I know enough about Andy's work really. And when we were doing, say, the mythology box set. It was interesting because Barry really was like, well, he was one of the Bee Gees. And into my mind, it's like, really? Because I always thought of him as a totally separate entity. I mean, I know you worked on his records, but I, I, he and I didn't have a dialogue about it. But but I realized that it's, you know, the Gibb family as a whole is just, there's just so much out there, you know. Because we've recently just done Andy's ep- uh, on from sort of 73 to Flowing Rivers. We played a clip of a of um, was it an acetate? Was it Windows? Windows of my world and mm. my father's a rebel. Okay. And yeah, it was it was really amazing. In a similar way to when you look at the Bee Gees career and and you go back to Australia, and you can see the genesis of the later Bee Gees, i.e., <clears throat> listening to Robin's "I Am the World." It's like a real precursor to his '67 '68 material, and with. Andy's stuff, it was the same thing, listening to something like uh, an early version of Words and Music or listening to Westfield Mansion or to... Um, Flowing Rivers. Flowing Rivers. You could really hear like that, that same progression that he's going through 10 years after his brothers. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's true. I mean, and I've heard some of those other early things that he was doing and it's really good stuff. I mean, it sort of makes me feel like there's another piece of, of uh, you know, 
the time that I need to devote to Andy and his music to like, to kind of really understand all of it. Um, but you know, there's, there's so many offshoots and, you know, like, uh, Billy Laurie. I, I love Tintin. I love the Tintin records, you know, and prior to that, the, um, you know, those Steve Kipner and Steve Groves had a record out on the toast label called Steve and Stevie, which is a great album that I, that I have in my collection. I love, uh, it may not have Morris on it, but it's, I mean, it's still, you know, it's those guys and it's also, you know, attached to Nat Kipner, who's a big formative, um, uh, uh, figure in, in, in their story in Australia. I mean, it's, it's a lot. I mean, that's why also my book is a very narrow, uh, part of their story, but it's still so, uh, vast. Um, I just been reading Bob Stanley's new book on the Bee Gees. I highly recommend it as a person who's studied the, the Gibbs myself and read numerous books on them and has a lot of books that I like uh, in my collection on them. Um, but Bob's got a very entertaining um, way about how he's telling the story. And he does bring up some interesting things that other people haven't. Uh, so, and he definitely knows their music. Uh, he's not approaching it in the way that some authors have where it's like, well, got a contract to write a book about the Bee Gees. So I'm just going to write this book. Um, this is definitely something that, that Bob, uh, is passionate about. And, and so it's, it's a fun read. It, it's, it goes along very fast. Um, but it, it's, it's not a labor to get through. It's, it's really, you know, it's, it's really fun because it just reminds you and brings up all the the highlights. He'll talk about four faces West or, you know, Treacle Brown or the Pippi Longstocking thing in passing, you know, Stuff like that, you know, that, and then you're like, oh, I want to hear Four Faces West. So, so there's lots of stuff like that in there. So, I, so listeners who are sort of on the fence to see it as yet another book on the Bee Gees and the Bee Gees story um, might find it very, a, a nice, entertaining read anyway, because, uh, because it is, it is nicely, nicely worded and put together. I did read, um, Andrew, that I think Samantha Gibb was interviewed and she said she would look better dad's legacy and, and tracks and stuff done released. And she did mention something about a fire and a lot of the tracks were lost or. I don't know anything about that. Um, I mean, when it comes to the loner, um, that era of, of his music, I've gone through what tapes were stored and they're now with universal, you know, so the stuff should be accessible through them. But, uh, and you know, I've heard acetates of, of things, but there's good quality copies of most of that material that he was working on in that period. It may be that the later period, because obviously he also was doing stuff, film soundtracks in the eighties. And so I don't know what was lost. I mean, it's the same thing with the, you know, Robin's estate were obviously the drivers behind doing the, um, say by the bell project, which was wonderful, but they didn't necessarily have, give me anything. They, they didn't say, Oh, well, yeah, Robin was saving. Here's a here's a stack of acetates, or these tapes might be helpful to you, or anything. They were like, if you can do this without having to get anything from us, we're happy about that. But yeah, but but I wonder, like, in some closet somewhere in Robin's house, is is you know, is, is there is there some other box of stuff? You know, uh, there's always that that thought, like you know, somewhere in that big vast expanse. Uh, is there some stuff left over from the period or did he all put it on top of the dustbin that, that one day and it just, you know, went off into the wind cause he was going to make more songs and write other stuff. And, 
you know, I think about what he's going to do a, a play and he's doing paintings and a movie and, you know, all the, all the things he's talking about in those interviews. So how did your radio show come about then, Andrew? Well, I started it in um, 2006. Um, a friend of mine was started to DJ on a internet radio station called Luxuria Music. And he said, well, you might want to do this. And I want to do some DJing for some time. And I'd done a couple of compilations for the Rhino label, one called Hallucinations and another called Come to the Sunshine, that were in this sort of what they call nuggets, this series called nuggets, which are not really hit records or, or one hit records, but they're sort of sixties obscurities. But now there's, there's a big cult for, for those sorts of things that's developed. The first nuggets record came out in 1972. It was put together by a guy named Lenny Kay, who plays now with Patti Smith. And um, it, it just sort of is a discovery thing for obscure records. And so that, that became sort of a blueprint for me. I go and look for 45s primarily and all over the world, wherever I'm traveling and, um, try and, you know, people say, well, what's on your want list? And I said, I don't really have one. Um, you know, I may say, oh, I really want that Lori Balmer 45 and, and get it or, or whatever, but, but I'm looking for names on records or other things. If I get a chance, I have a portable record player in my car. And if I get a chance to put down the needle on, on things, um, and listen to lots of things, it's about my discovery. So for the last 16 or 17 years, I have a show it's moved to uh, WFMU, which is a station on the East coast uh, in America uh, that runs out of Jersey city. It's um, they've got a, a, a stream on there called rock and soul radio. And that's been the home of uh, come to the sunshine for the last six or so years. And so on Mondays um, I'm on there uh, either with a new show, like I'll have um, in the coming weeks or because I have 16 or so years of broadcasts, I'm repeating some of the older ones as well or updating them. I did a, a updated version of the BG show that I'd done in very early days. Um, so it's just exploration of, uh, of my, uh, of my collection, you know, and sharing it with people. Cause you recently did one with um, Graham Goldman, which is one of my favorites yes. as well. And that's, uh, that was a good episode. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I loved I loved doing the Graham Golden one, and I've actually just um, just been chatting to Harvey Lisberg, who's got a new book out. He was the manager of Graham Goldman and also the manager of Herman's Hermits, and uh, he's going to be coming on my show, I believe, and we're going to talk all about that era because he had a publishing company and he also was a songwriter himself. So uh, I think we're going to go over cover some of that Graham Goldman ground again. Oh, excellent! Because he sort of discover Graham and maybe play some different songs and play some stuff that uh, is all from that, from that era. But it's, it's a very, uh, my show just covers the 1960s. Really. It's just a specialty show. So people don't have the, the wrong idea that it covers every, you know, I, I'm interested in lots of other aspects of music and day to day. I'm, you know, I'm out either buying records or listening to records or working on records. Um, still work on the reissues for the kinks and uh, lots of other people. So, um, my life is, is music and music archiving and, uh, and, uh, I'm trying to find more time for other things. <laughs> so I know the seat, the hit singles of the monk is, is there an album you'd recommend? Yeah. I mean, well, their fourth album, um, Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn and Jones limited, I think is their most creative record. Another pleasant valley Sunday. Sunday. Chocolate. 
And still a fairly popular record in the UK. I mean, the, the, the Monkees had an enormous following in the UK uh, and still do. So um, that's the one that Song for Song is is the best built of their records with the least, like no novelty songs or things. You know, the Monkees records uh, tendency to have a hit and miss ratio where they, you know, have a lot of strong songs because Goff and King were writing for them and Man and Whale. And then Michael Nesmith was a great songwriter as well. Now, I noticed that actually because they, they well, they like studio writers a lot of them because I think you've got like, is it Jim Keller or Diana Hildebrand? And they sort of went to work on sort of some people like the Partridge family and, and all different things, didn't they? Yeah, it's a company called Screen Gems actually that had been put together. It was an offshoot of a, of a television company in America uh, through Columbia Pictures, Screen Gems. And uh, they had bought a publishing catalog from a guy named Don Kirshner, um, who you may know of later on had a TV show, Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. And But at the dawn of the 1960s, he was a failed songwriter himself, but had recognized the talent in other songwriters and started publishing them. And so he he had been a, a partner of, of Bobby Darren for a time, and then he discovered Goffin and King and uh, signed them up for publishing. Barry Mann and Cynthia Whale, Jack Keller, Diane Hildebrand, uh, all these great writers. Eventually, Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart, and uh, who wrote records. But he sold the company to Screen Gems and then took on a greater role with them about putting music in television and films. And when the Monkees Project came along, he saw a big opportunity to get involved. And so he was involved with them. But the Monkees story is quite a, a strange one because as as they became successful, immediately within three or four months of their uh, debut and launch, um, there was a backlash about whether or not um, the Monkees music was valid because they used studio musicians on, on their records, much like the Birds and the, and the, uh, the Beach Boys and the Supremes almost, you know, a ton of other 60s artists, but the Monkees just contributed vocally to their records for the, for the most part, the first two albums. Um, but they wanted to play their own uh, own instruments on their records and do the backing tracks and all that, which they did. But in order to do that, they ended up ousting Don Kirshner and it was a whole thing. So that's been, that's the big part of like why my book is so, my 700 page version of the book is so large because it goes through all the stuff I, I found all these court documents and things uh, regarding all that. So, you know, the, that's my passion is really research and, and, you know, looking at newspaper archives of, of uh, you know, I collect old uh, music weeklies from, from England, disc and music echo record mirror, melody maker. I have physically have them at my office and I read through them. And so um, I'm always looking at some other bit on the BGs and like, I got to put that in, revise my book so so that's what that's what my plan is is to is to augment my book and update it and and also incorporate whatever new stuff has been uh, surfaced in the i don't know how has it been 10 years or so since i've done that book so something like that because on the andy episode we did cover um the Bee Gees one and then we was also talking about twinkie didn't we because yeah. it, i think uh joseph goes to say that andy did they did give that song to andy to try yeah there is a recording of andy singing it i've heard uh, so that does exist, but it's an odd thing because Twinkie, you know, there's the movie uh, called Twinkie from that period. So it would seem like they wrote that as a theme uh, that maybe was rejected for some reason. Because I said to Cristiano, I don't, I don't think the lyrics really suit Andy, do they? The, the, you know, it's a bit of an odd one, really, for a sort of 15-year-old to be singing. Well, the movie Twinkie is, is an odd movie. Um, if, you ever, if you ever get to see it, 
it could never be made today. <laughs> it's about it's about about like a, a 15 year old girl about thereabouts who meets an older man um, played by Charles Bronson, uh, who's best known you know as a heavy character. But in this movie, he plays uh, sort of the reluctant romantic uh, American uh, suitor of this young British schoolgirl, and they get married. And um, it's quite odd. Uh, you know, I mean, it makes, it makes the storyline and melody much, much seem much more straightforward. Kids are going to run away and, and live together happily ever after. The melody, that movie had a huge impact on me uh, personally when I first saw that. And the way the music's used in that is, is brilliant. But Twinkie would seem like uh, to be around the same period. And obviously the, the they were interested in, in having their, their songs and movies and it just you know, they didn't end up using it in that movie, but I believe that it was probably for that. I mean, that's my best guess. I assume that you were able to play Twinkie because you had it in the track listing for a Cucumber Castle Deluxe. No, no, I had that through um, a publisher's uh, acetate, um, so it wasn't specifically from my work with the BGS. Or it, it, it certainly does not exist uh, when when we got all the tapes over uh, into Los Angeles from Germany. There was no tape of Twinkie in all of that stuff. So what I what I played was not something I got from work. It's something I got from uh, from uh, a, a publisher's acetate of it. And um, I think the Barry must have been given a script or something like that for the movie because there's the lyrics seem to reflect something of of that sort of a story in a small cement top building, you know, much like a Melody Fair was kind of in reverse. You know, they had written Melody Fair, but then um, the people who made the movie Melody decided, oh, it would be brilliant to have that, you know, do a, a song sort of, or, um, you know, title the movie after that, because, you know, it really works with this story. So I think it's maybe kind of the reverse version of that. Uh, but yeah, that's a story with Twinkie. That's one of those things that, um, that was not in the official tape library. Sounds like a demo though, Andrew, doesn't it? Yeah. It's hard to tell though, because that era of their stuff was very, very basic, could be very basic. Um, if it if it didn't have, I mean, it still sounds like Morris on there playing bass. I mean, if it didn't have the big Bill Shepard string arrangement or Jerry Shuri or whatever, um, I guess it's unfinished. <laughs> but um, but I, you know, that's another thing I love. I love Bill Shepard's uh, contribution to the, to the Gibbs, and I think that's very very under underestimated and underreported. Uh, just what he did with their music, how he lifted it from the very basic stuff they would give him. Um, yeah, incredible. And um, I'm still trying to understand Ozzy Burns' contribution too, you know, um, beyond what he's doing in the late period Australia to the early period uh, Britain. I mean, that's sort of an interesting thing to me as well. But yeah, there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of stuff still to dig into, I think. And I did wonder when we were doing the 67 through to 1972 episodes, when the Bee Gees were writing their songs... Would they write the songs minus Bill Shepard's orchestrations and give them to him? Or would they be sort of working on them all together? Or would they just like leave the gaps in the arrangements for him to fill? As far as I can tell, 
from from my own experience and I and I not being in the room with them, uh, they would record, write and record the songs without any of Bill Shepard's um, arrangements in mind at all. And then they would hand off the um, they would hand off the, the the tapes to him, and he would write the arrangement and augment what they were doing, and do it in a, a really beautiful way. And I don't think that they were that involved in that part of it, uh, his augmentation. But oftentimes with arrangers um, in the '60s, that was quite normal. They wouldn't, you know. I've, I've heard many stories. Oh, Paul McCartney came over and he hummed me. You know, I want the strings to go da 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 da, and I want the cellos to do this. You know, and I, I've heard many things about that, but I've never heard that about the, the Bee Gees. But I also think that they had this long-standing relationship with Bill Shepard that they trusted and, and knew he would do what they wanted. Um, and there's certain times where they would recut things too. I mean, they recut multiple versions of, you know, certain songs really and sincerely or, or, you know, whatever, whatever else. Um, uh, but I, I don't see that there was ever, ever any sense that there was any, anything but just like what we do in the studio is we, you know, oftentimes they were writing songs in the studio, which I don't, I can't think of any other artist that would do that as a regular thing that have a session booked, they show up, most people show up and they've got either a demo or they've written the song, they've rehearsed it. They know what they're going to do. Occasionally it'd be like a jam session and that develops into a song, whatever. That's my experience. The Gibbs for, for all that I've been able to tell. And certainly this is what Barry told me, Robin told me and Vince, um, that show up at the studio at IBC and okay, what are we going to write about today? And they start writing a song there, then immediately start playing it with Vince and Colin. And oftentimes I found like Colin's drumming on like other takes of the songs was better than the final takes. But as soon as they got a complete take of something, meaning a full pass with the, you know, beginning, start and end complete, they'd usually move on to another song. Um, Morris would immediately, you know, add, you know, bass or Mellotron if he wasn't playing bass or, you know, piano. He'd do those overdubs, send it off to Bill Shepard. Bill Shepard adds the strings. They bring it back. They mix it. They finish the voices. That's the 60s BG's working method for the most part. Sometimes, obviously, they'd be, they, you know, we hear about them traveling. They're on a plane writing I Started a Joke, or they're in New York and they're writing Massachusetts. So I'm not saying they wrote every song in the studio. I'm just saying that in general, like a lot of these things in this big creative period, um, they're in the studio and they're just, that's what they're doing. I mean, I, I've heard the story that every Christian lionhearted man <clears throat> that, that <clears throat> Robert Stigwood brought Brian Epstein down to IBC and said, hey, these are, you know, look at what my boys can do. Okay, write a song. And they wrote that song in front of him that night and recorded. I mean, you know, I believe that that's how they did it. I mean, that, that's the, their genius is that they weren't constricted by the traditions of, of um, how popular music was made, which was primarily either written by other people like a Goffin and King, or if you're the Beatles, John and Paul individually or collectively are off writing a song they bring into the studio and teach it to George and Ringo. The Bee Gees, it's like, well, we want to make a record. Book IBC. Okay, well, what are, you, what are you going to record? We're going to write it right now. We're going to go into this room. 
know, Vincent Colin, you guys wait in that there with Dick Ashby. Um, you know, um, we'll be with you in about 30, 40 minutes. And that's why a lot of the times, like the, they've got vocal melodies, but the vocal, the, the lyrics are coming last. I was always really impressed to find out how much Robin contributed to songs that I, I thought were mostly like, Oh, that seems like a Barry thing, but Robin's really engaged in a lot of the, the lyric writing, you know, uh, things you think, Oh, stuff that Robin sings must be him. But I think that they swapped roles all the time. There's also a lot of stuff where they would go in and do stuff just if they, if they were, you know, if, if they were dry on an idea, they didn't have an idea. They would do comedy tracks too, just for fun. Um, you know, uh, completely unoriginal and yeah, Mr. Wallace waiting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's that sort of thing just to keep it going. Just like, well, if we're frustrating, like whatever we can come up with. So, um, that's what's so interesting about them. I, I think that's what most people don't understand at all about about them and why they're so different. They're not the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or the Who or the Kinks. These are guys who who just are walking around and they, they don't have any pretension of like, well, we're going to really lay this heavy message on people about a guy going to the electric chair. It's like, no, they just happen to show up and that's, that's what they decided to write about that day. I mean, they, and then... Well, we're done with that. Now we're now we're writing, you know, um, you know, uh, I laugh in your face. Or I were, you know, they're just. It's like, well, none of these songs really connect with one another. Like, how is this all part of? The, but it's like, no, it's just them going through their creative process of whatever their next song is. Um, but that, that's the other part of Odessa that's sort of baffled me too. The the uh, the American opera part that was supposed to be like a day in the life of America, some sort of thing, some sort of conceptual thing to it, which I don't. Yeah, when we did the episode, I, I really, really tried to think and work out what the concept of that album is. And I was listening to it and listening to the sketches of it. And, and all I could get was that there's a captain clinging to an iceberg with a lost love and that's and I, I kept trying to work out the story and I went through it in the episode and it was the same thing with Life in a Tin Can trying to work out if there's a concept to that album and it, it's just the magic of their music that it keeps you guessing and it keeps you listening 50 odd years later yeah it's interesting Colin is now um, doing interviews and is around a bit so um, I'm always curious just to hear his his point of view and see if he if he enlightens us because you know, he's very in, he was very formative in not just the early records they made in Britain, but also the late period of Australia. And, and, you know, like Robin was telling me, I said, well, so you found a house, you know, uh, in, in Hendon, you know, when you first, well, how'd you get the house? You know, I was like, it was, oh, well, I guess Colin had gotten it, got it for us. So he's more involved with, with a lot of the nuts and bolts of how they got started in the UK. Um, cause he was over there slightly before them, but because of the discord, and him suing them at that point, I think, uh, at the end of uh, Cucumber Castle or that in that era, that you know, he was sort of his side of the story hasn't really been explored, and he didn't talk about it as much. Uh, whereas Vince was very forthcoming; they always very friendly with Vince. He's a very nice guy. And and I saw as well there was I think there was a Colin and Morris composition. I think it's like something like everything to do with Mother Goose. Yeah, there's a finished version of that. Uh, that there is a there's no multi-track for it, but there's a finished mixed down version of it with Colin singing lead. Is it quite comedic? Is I can't quite picture how it would be. No, no, it's it's not. It's actually like um, 
it's rather like uh, like a Manfred Mann track of that era, like a Mighty Quinn sort of sort of a song. It sort of sounds like something Mike Dabo might might have written. Uh, I know Mighty Quinn's written by Bob Dylan, but it's got if you listen to that sort of era of of Manfred Mann, the later post Paul Jones era, it's sort of got that feel. I mean, uh, Colin apparently was very much into the band in that period, and. I remember saying to to Barry, I go, wow, you know, Marley Pert Drive really has like a, a feel like the band. He goes, what do you mean? I go, well, you know, sounds like a track off, you know, like, he goes, I don't, I don't really hear that. I'm like, that's all I, that's all I hear on that. Really, you know, Colin really trying to do the, the weight type of drums and, and that sort of stuff. And the Bee Gees were, were influenced by other artists, um, even if they translated those influences and made everything kind of their own, you know. Like they did really, I suppose, in 74, didn't it, with, with, with Mr. Natural. Yeah. That's what's so good about your radio show in that you're, because you're just covering the 60s, when you get an artist, you can really go in depth into the nitty gritty of those sorts of things and really investigate that concise period. And hearing things like what we spoke about with Twinkie, you hear that song and you can picture Barry and Morris sat across each other on stools with acoustic and bass guitar, just working out this song. And I'm sure you've found it across all the other songs that you've played. It's just so good to have that concise investigation of an artist and try just try and understand where they were, their headspace, their mentality. Yeah, for sure. And, and stylistically, the way that they played in that era, I mean, a lot of stuff in that era was, was Barry and Morris both playing acoustic guitars as a basic track. And then Morris would add the bass after like, and Morris had a very distinct style with the acoustic guitar. where it was very like staccato, very like chink, 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 you know, like he would do certain things that Barry wouldn't do. And, um, like you hear that sort of on the intro to lamplight and, uh, there's a few other, other things. Um, obviously it's him playing on, um, who's on the flamenco guitar on the uh, demo of Odessa. I believe that that's probably Morris, but, um, I'm not sure if Vince was still around in that in that era. I mean, Morris is, does some amazing stuff. Um, his level of musicality has sort of never really been fully documented. Like, I, I just he's he's sort of this glue that that sort of papers over everything that they're doing. I mean, it just um, it's just astonishing. Just his is the piano, harpsichord, mellotron, bass. And very distinct bass sound, very distinct bass playing, um, and then guitars, lots of guitars. I mean, that's that's the thing. He's such talent, such talent. Yeah, and that's why when we were going through his loner material, it was just amazing how you get something like Journey to the Misty Mountains going into the loner, and then you get like um, Soldier Johnny. They're all so different, but they've kind of got that same sort of swamp rock style, but he was just so versatile in things that he was doing, like the bass work on a song like I've Come Back is just tremendous. I think that's, again, that goes back to the importance of reissues and archival projects in that it can just change opinions for the better and just reinterpret and reintroduce material which has otherwise been lost. Yeah, and that's what's amazing about discovering the bits and pieces and the, the you know, that's my sort of thing that I'm most interested in, like, well, who did play this and how did this come about? And, and, you know, what's the background of this to sort of have that, that insight, because I, 
it's just like knowing more about what you love, you know. Because I would have thought with the release of the movie, they would they could have put some unreleased stuff in there as well, just, and then done like a movie soundtrack, which could have way of bringing things in together. Well, that sounds like a great idea, uh, <laughs> and I wish that they would do things like that. I just I don't know if they don't see the big win out of that as far as you know, trying to get it done and get Barry to approve it and, and all of that. Um, you know, I'm thinking of things like Harry's Gate, referring to 58 and these sort of things, could have been played behind, you know, the early years. Oh, for sure. For sure. I, I mean, when we were first discussing that documentary, uh, I, you know, it di- it seemed like it was going to be even more of an emphasis on the Miami era Bee Gees. Um, and so I was actually shocked that they went back and did as much on the early era th- uh, as they did. And I was kind of impressed that they got as much as that they did in. But that being said, it was made um, for Universal, who funded it, to try and get new people to be interested in the Bee Gees, um, which they were very successful in, actually. There's a real rebirth and in interest in the Bee Gees based off of that documentary. And um, that's the thing you're seeing a lot now is that the, the hardcore fans like us are being you know, passed over as like, we got to figure out how to make some new fans, you know, who are going to carry on the legacy of this or interest of this for the future. So, you know, they're probably thinking less about Harry's Gate and more about like a Bee Gees TikTok channel or having them on threads or it, it, that's probably, you know, uh, it's unfortunate when you have some, some quality like, um, you know, kick in the head that a complete un unreleased album that's totally finished and ready to go they could just you know be scheduled for release you know like that um it wouldn't take anything because if the bootleg is good if the bootleg quality wise that and barry's the kids no good you know that they're not bad qualities to listen to no no the kids no good has got great stuff on it as well yeah there's just so much music and there's tons of music that hasn't hasn't been heard and hasn't circulated that that's in the vault. 110, 110 compositions from 1970 alone. Yeah. This is incredible. <laughs> it is. I can't think of any other artist that compares in that, um, as far as sheer, you know, quantity. So if you had to recommend to, let's say we're proposing this to a new Bee Gees fan, if you had to, if you were going to point them in the direction of an album or a particular track, which direction would you recommend them going in? Um, well, it's a long pause because there's so many different, you know, like my go-to is usually I, you know, get people interested in, in stuff off of the, you know, idea or horizontal or BG's first. And then once I've got them hooked, it's like, put in the time and listen to Odessa. You may not, you may not, uh, completely absorb it all in the first play, but you know, this, this record's really a grower. Um, but I, I think that it's, it's kind of it's going in all different directions. I mean, you know, I, as much as I like Cucumber Castle and Two Years On, there's certain songs on those that that are some of my favorites. Um, they're harder to recommend as whole albums, where you know every single song is great. Um, I mean, I think Two Years On has some amazing stuff on it. Portrait of Louise is my favorite off of Two Years On, and um, I also like the First Mistake I Made. I think those are both great. You know, and then getting into Trafalgar, I mean, Walking Back to Waterloo is just a stunning song. I was watching, um, they've been putting up on 
YouTube, the complete midnight special uh, episodes here. And um, which is great because we've seen all these clips and they put up a, a lot of the Bee Gees clips now, but, but seeing the entire episodes and seeing them do these medleys and things. I mean, I was sitting last Sunday watching Bee Gees just do, uh, you know, one of their acoustic medleys from 73 and just like people just don't even know <laughs> how amazing this is like watching. It's like watching the greatest artists of all time. Like just, it's, it's, they're just, it's just such a natural thing for them. What they've got is such a, it's just such a unique natural uh, ability. And so unlike any other artist. Um, so I, so I almost these days, maybe I would point somebody to a YouTube clip like that of them doing a medley and say, listen to these guys with just two acoustic guitars and their three voices and see what they do. Um, and then, after you're hooked on that, welcome to this world of music. Orchestrated ballads, soulful R&B, pop, psychedelia, country music. It's all it's all there. It's it's every every genre more or less. You know they they dabbled in uh, and and they did great stuff in all of them. I mean, Barry as a country singer is is an amazing country singer, and you know you think about stuff off cucumber castle in that country mode it's some great stuff no i think so yeah it's it's an unparalleled discography catalogue of work body of work that that yeah there's nothing to compare it to in its variety versatility capacity of it well i think unparalleled is is absolutely the, the right the right term so i appreciate you saying it and i think that's also what makes it so difficult to suggest something, um, to, to get into it, you know, whereas you might just hear their music on an advert or some other thing might hook you on it. But I, I think that's why they're the, uh, the enigma with the stigma, as he said, uh, as Barry said, they're, uh, you know, there, there's still a lot to, that we'll never know about them. Um, there's still something really intriguing about them. And that's, that's why, uh, I've devoted a big part of my life to, to loving uh, their music and listening to them. Excellent. Well, I think we look forward to your book coming out, Andrew, and I think we'll we'll wind up because you've been very generous, actually, at, uh, with us. Oh, it's my great pleasure. I, um, I know you. I know your listeners can't see this, but just because I happen to be in my own living room, I'll show you. Uh, I'll show you what I have up on the wall here behind me. Um, this is uh, a poster for the Bee Gees performance at the Hollywood Bowl that never took place. Oh wow. Oh yeah. Um for from it was canceled in 1968. And uh over here I have a concert poster for this was hung on the door at the um ABC Chester for a show that did take place. I love they got the conductor like a Bill Shepherd, conductor Bill Shepherd, DJs and their orchestra, grapefruit, Dave D. Dozy Beaky McIntosh. So yeah, these are, uh, you know, in my office, I've got the uh, promotional poster for uh, original one for um, New York mining disaster up. So, I mean, I, I just, I love the BG so much. And so it's, it's such a thrill to get to talk to you about them. And us too as well. Yeah. Yeah. The first ever Bee Gees album I listened to was horizontal. And soon after listening to that, I went straight into the deluxe horizontal and explored that. So it, it all started with the work that you were involved with for me. Well, thank you so much. And and when 
some year in the future when the book is is done, I I do end up doing all these things. They just take a, to- a bit of time, but um, I'd love to come back and talk to you about the book. Oh, brilliant! Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in revisiting all the stuff because I didn't do any preparation for this. I just extemporaneously talked to you, but hopefully you got enough of it, enough material to 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 do something with. So yeah, definitely, and I'll have to put pictures out of those posters as well so that listeners can understand can see what you're talking about oh yeah if you i'll I'll take photos of them if you want me to send send along some photos excellent well have a great day thank you so much so um yeah cheers then have a good evening cheers thank you for the next episode we're going back to the youngest gib brother for andy's second album shadow dancing Looking forward to that. So with that in mind, shall we go off with... Thank you for listening to Words, the Bee Gees podcast, presented by Stuart and Cristiano Jepson. Follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Words Bee Gees Podcast and on Twitter at Words Bee Gees Pod. Or, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at wordsbeegeespodcast at gmail.com. Say